This is Rachel Fields and Sam Swartz with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Wisconsin's 2nd District Court of Appeals has allowed a decision from a conservative judge forbidding ballot spoiling to go into effect. Ballot spoiling is an unusual practice where an absentee voter contacts their county clerk and asks that their ballot be avoided so that they can change their vote before an election. The practice is relatively rare, but can be useful if a candidate withdraws from a campaign before Election Day, making the votes for them meaningless, as happened in the spring's primaries. Now, however, the practice is forbidden, as the Bipartisan Wisconsin Election Commission is forbidden by the courts from offering that service in this or subsequent elections, according to the Associated Press. This marks another judicial success in Wisconsin for the group Restoring Integrity and Trust in Elections, a conservative advocacy group who brought the case. The Urban League of Greater Madison announced today that they had received a $2.9 million donation from Mackenzie Scott, the former wife of Jeff Bezos and partial owner of Amazon. A portion of the donation will go to the Black Business Hub Project, a planned enterprise center devoted to providing space and resources for black entrepreneurs, bringing that project to $4 million short of its $22 million goal. Scott has pledged to donate more than half of her inherited fortune, and the New York Times reports that she has donated more than $12 billion since 2019. Her net worth is still more than $33 billion. The city of Madison announced on Friday that the Police Civilian Oversight Board has chosen Robert Copley as the city's new independent police monitor. The announcement comes after the first two choices from the board both declined the offer of the position, according to the Wisconsin State Journal. The independent police monitor is a new position in the city government, and their job would be to investigate police conduct and participate in community outreach. However, they would not have the power to fire or discipline officers in any way. Copley still needs to be confirmed by the city council before he can assume the position. The town of Madison officially dissolved last night after it was incorporated into the surrounding cities of Madison and Fitchburg. About 5,000 of the former residents will be joining Madison, while another 1,400 will be joining Fitchburg, with a possible change of address reflecting the shift, according to WMTV. The move comes at the culmination of a nearly 20-year plan to phase out the town, which stretched along the Beltline along the south border of the city of Madison. Some residents may have their city services provider shift after the incorporation. A little over three-quarters of the more than 44,000 absentee ballots issued in the city of Madison have been successfully returned to the Madison City Clerk's Office, according to information provided by the city. The return rate is similar for Dane County at large. As well, nearly 9,000 of those absentee ballots were from the city's absentee in-person system, where a voter can cast their ballot at various sites across the city until November 6th. That is only about a quarter of the 182,000 registered voters in the city of Madison, so make sure you make your plan to cast your ballot. And now, on to today's top stories. The fall election is just around the corner, and while there are many races on the ballot, some are a bit closer to home. One of the offices up for election next week is for Dane County Sheriff, where incumbent Democrat Calvin Barrett is taking on Republican Anthony Hamilton. WORT producer Nate Weggehout gives a breakdown on the two candidates. Calvin Barrett was appointed Dane County Sheriff by Governor Evers last year after the retirement of former Sheriff David Mahoney. 
A year and a half later, Barrett is running to keep the seat as a Democrat. Barrett began his law enforcement career with the Dane County Sheriff's Office in 2009. Barrett also taught at Madison College and was the faculty director of the Criminal Justice Studies program at the college. Barrett says that his diverse professional background in law enforcement makes him the perfect fit for the role of Dane County Sheriff. And which includes working here at the Dane County Sheriff's Office as a deputy. Um, I worked as a Sun Prairie Police Department officer. I worked as a Wisconsin State Fair Park Police Officer, as well as I have the academic side and experience as I was a full-time instructor in the Madison College Criminal Justice Studies Program, as well as the lead defense and arrest tactics instructor in the Madison College Law Enforcement Academy. Anthony Hamilton, who is running as a Republican, has been with the Dane County Sheriff's Office since 2008. While his current role is that of a detective, he had previously worked in the jail division and as a SWAT member. Hamilton also points to his experience in law enforcement. I have 14 years of experience as a deputy with the Dane County Sheriff's Office, the last three of which has been as a detective. I have always put victims as my top priority and getting them the justice that they deserve. And when uh, policing based on extremist political ideas uh, subverts that, I think that it minimizes the justice that we give to the victims and makes them feel re-victimized. Hamilton's campaign motto has been policing, not politics. On his campaign website, Hamilton points to an announcement made by the Sheriff's Department last year that those within the Dane County Jail will not be referred to as inmates and instead as residents. Hamilton says that calling them residents coddles people incarcerated in the jail. Now, in and of itself, I don't have any real disagreement with that except he did this as kind of a unilateral uh, decision without meeting with a single victim advocacy group. He never interviewed any victims. He made this decision uh, based solely upon his political ideas. And all victim advocacy groups in this county uh, were seriously insulted by that. Um, I know this because as a detective, I work with many of those people. Barrett says that he is working to make meaningful change in Dane County by using new data-driven methods to make Dane County safer for everyone. That's why all of the implementation that we have done in the past 15 to 17 months that I've been here in office have been successful because we have taken the evidence-based data-driven decision-making mindset to everything that we do. And that's what's needed to move forward. I fought hard and I'm advocating for us to continue to have proactive ways to maintain that we're serving our community, especially in our rural areas. Both Barrett and Hamilton say that completing the stalled Dane County Jail Consolidation Project is of top concern. Barrett has long been critical of the current Dane County Jail, which was first built in the 1950s, calling it inhumane, unsafe, and borderline unconstitutional. Hamilton agrees, saying that it is the job of the Dan County Sheriff to oversee the jail, but without an updated jail, the sheriff is not able to live up to their constitutional duties. What's the biggest difference between the two candidates? Barrett says that not only does he have the experience of being Dane County Sheriff, but he has been keeping his campaign clean. The campaign that we've been running has been very successful and positive and focusing on all of the things that we have done that we're doing now, but what I will continue to do as sheriff moving forward and staying away from the negative 
uh, you know, campaigns that have just poisoned our, our, our current politics. Hamilton, though, has criticized Barrett for being appointed to the position. And Hamilton says that if elected, he would make the sheriff's department more transparent. Hamilton points to the two recent shootings by the department in Oregon and Windsor that have happened in the last month. I don't know why, for whatever reason, our current sheriff has decided to uh, not be transparent with the public when he's had every opportunity, even during this last few weeks of an election cycle, to be transparent with the public and parent with the public and build trust, build bridges and show the public, hey, Maybe a mistake was made, maybe not, but I'm going to give you information. Instead, he's hiding. Both of those shootings are under investigation by the state justice department, and law enforcement typically does not comment on ongoing investigations. Meanwhile, Hamilton has recently filed a federal civil rights lawsuit alleging he was unfairly disciplined after raising concerns over the legality of a raid last year. The sheriff's office maintains Hamilton was placed on leave after he recorded the raid without being authorized to do so. He then shared the video on the messaging app Signal against department policy, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. That lawsuit is still awaiting a hearing. The fall election will take place next Tuesday, November 8th. Early in-person voting is open now until Sunday, November 6th. While you can register to vote at your polling place on Election Day, there is no voting registration this weekend. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggiehout. There is nothing worse than a carefully crafted costume being ruined by a puffer jacket worn over it. But that's no concern tonight. We have perfect trick-or-treating weather this evening, and the nice weather is looking to stick around into November. WORT producer, weather producer Caitlin Davis has your full weather report. Life is gourd here in Madison with higher temperatures yet again returning into the area, just in time for the Halloween week to end. Believe it or not, tomorrow is the first day of November and temperatures are looking to reach the 70s. And this time, it doesn't seem to be witchful thinking. But let's not get ahead of today. Temperatures in Madison are currently sitting at 59 degrees, with light winds blowing from west-southwest. Humidity is sitting at 53%, and skies are clear. Moving into the night, temperatures will drop down into the 40s, but will be heating up pretty nice into tomorrow. If you're looking to have your spirits lifted, tomorrow is the day. Temperatures will be much warmer throughout the day, hovering in the mid to upper 60s and possibly reaching the 70s later into the day. Skies will be clear and sunny all day long with fluctuating wind speeds, but nothing that should be getting too intense to bring those real field temperatures down. Wednesday is again looking to be beautiful. Sunny clear skies, but a higher wind speed than what we will see on Tuesday. The low for Wednesday will only go down to 52 degrees, but we will be seeing higher humidity throughout the day. Thursday is also looking to reach the 70s, but with a shift. There will be a slight chance for rain and skies will be variably cloudy. Wind speeds will continue to raise between 10 and 20 miles per hour. Again, having that chance for rain throughout the day, but an even higher chance into the evening. Although we will be seeing higher temperatures the next few days, no need to have worries for the sun. The UV index is only looking to reach the two or three categories for the next few days. Ragweed pollen will also be in the low category for the next few days. Friday is looking to be a shift from warmer to cooler weather again, with the front coming through, bringing along even higher wind speeds, and we will also be likely seeing showers throughout the day and into the evening. High humidity is expected throughout the day. Also, a reminder, the days will continue to get shorter and shorter. The sun is now not rising until 7.30 a.m. and sets at 5.50 p.m., 
But be ready, because come November 6th, you will get an extra hour of sleep, a sense of relief from those harsh, gloomy wake-up calls. With your WORT weather report here in Madison, I'm your producer, Caitlin Davis. Have a happy and safe Halloween. It's now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The early months of the pandemic saw major disparities in the mortality rate between white and black people across the country. Over time, these disparities began to even out, not because black folks had lower mortality rates, but because white folks began to die at similar rates. According to a new report out of UW-Madison, the partisan makeup of its state's government played a major role in the evening, in the evening of disparities. WORT producer Nate Wagehout spoke to Adeline Lowe, assistant professor of political science at UW-Madison and lead author on the report, and what she found. All right, so Adeline, just to sort of start things off here, give us a little bit of uh, background and tell me a little bit about the uh, pandemic mortality disparities that exist between uh, white folks and black folk uh, here in America. So at the start of the pandemic, which might feel a long time ago at this point, um, there was evidence that the virus sort of had very different effects across the races um, in in the U.S., in particular Black Americans faring worse on dimensions including illness, hospitalization, and death. Um, But then as the pandemic's periods wore on, um, so for the next year and a half, actually data suggested that um, some of the pandemic's racial inequality uh, patterns needed to be revised. It looked like there was a closing of the gap between black and white COVID-related mortality. Um, And these patterns of disparities, these changes over time, some of the the prior explanations for disparities couldn't possibly predict in um, all of these changes simply because the main factors that that we were exploring were actually uh, non-temporally changing. So for instance, um, the, the things that might drive these changes, the major theories pursued static factors, for instance, geography um, or pre-COVID institutional inequalities in healthcare or income um, or historical segregation in the U.S. But these types of factors couldn't be what's driving, if we, if we think the outcome is these changes in disparities over time, um, then these static things couldn't quite be explaining all of these changes over time. And so while they, of course, are important for the levels themselves, um, we started focusing on exploring the effects of political channels, um, which did vary over the course of the pandemic on these disparities. And so ultimately, we found that political polarization through the channels of public opinion and state-level public health policies these could, in fact, influence the, the disparities and how they change over time through enacted containment uh, policies and partisan differences in concern over COVID. Um, and ultimately, sort of the kicker here is we might, we might sort of have a takeaway that racial disparities improved over time, um, that there was leveling in the inequalities. So we started off kind of unequal across racial groups and then over time became less unequal. Um, But what we find is that the reason that we become less unequal, uh, one of the major factors is actually white American deaths increased. So it wasn't through sort of everyone um, dying less across groups, but rather one group was faring a lot worse over time. 
So those those disparities sort of uh, did tighten up, but not necessarily in in a good way. So you 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 mentioned there that the role that politics plays uh, in these disparities of COVID mortality. Uh, t- tell me a little bit more about that. Sure thing. So um, a, a major public policy tool um, throughout the pandemic has been state level impositions of different types of COVID related policies. Um, be they masking guidance or stay-at-home mandates or other types of health guidances. So these are all things that across the states, governors and, uh, and, and state officials could provide information on and could enact different policies for, and they did at different times. Um, so what we found is that containment and health policies were overall negatively associated with racial inequality and mortality over the, over the uh, first year and a half period of the pandemic. Likely, this results from lower relative mortality among black Americans compared to white Americans. So we're, we're focusing here on the racial inequalities and mortality between black Americans and white Americans. But that is despite the fact that individual policies may benefit or only be possible or followed for certain racial groups, sort of encapsulated in the phrase social distance is a privilege, um, their net effect is to actually reduce inequality. Um, And here, the differences that we we fundamentally see in these state-level public policy differences were in uh, Republican and Democrat governors enacting different amounts of different policies and at different times. So essentially, we find, found that Republican governors tended to enact fewer policies slightly later than their Democrat counterparts. Um, and since these policies were negatively associated with racial inequality and mortality, these, these partisan differences at the governor level um, could also, well, this polarization was also part of sort of the story of driving and and so that's not sort of the only thing there, the Republican states and Democrat states, uh, but it's also sort of uh, the public perception of COVID as well. Correct? Tell me tell me a little bit about how that plays into these disparities. So you're entirely correct. That's sort of the the macro up down um, uh, channel of political polarization that we were we we were interested in investigating. But of course. A, a huge component of how we have re- reacted to um, to the COVID pandemic and how that has changed over time is is important. So this is sort of the micro level um, how public opinion of COVID influences these racial disparities in mortality. So we found that as partisan disparity in Americans who were unconcerned about COVID increases, so differences across party in how concerned people were about COVID as this increased, racial inequality and COVID mortality decreased as a result, again, of greater numbers of white Americans dying. So at first, right, we might just sort of stop at the beginning and say, well, partisan disparity actually leads to a closing of the gap in racial inequality in COVID mortality. But this is, again, driven by greater numbers of white Americans dying. And this effect we found to be significant, statistically significant, positive and larger than the effect of relatively high amounts, uh, the relative high amounts of high levels of concern among, among the public. Um, and so inequality in COVID mortality is much more likely, uh, much more directly caused by the relative numbers of partisans who demonstrate or, or report no concern at all about COVID than the number of people who express higher levels of concern. So this sort of 
variation in public opinion across the political aisle also contributed. And and so now everything that we sort of went over here, and I know you sort of touched on this at the beginning of this interview, but how is that sort of different than what we had uh, previously sort of believed when it came to these disparities? Uh, is, is there any sort of major differences uh, between uh, what you found here and what had been uh, sort of commonly believed before? So at the time we were working on this, on this research, um, there, there was sort of a lot of discussion over, well, you know, closing of the gap, that must be a sort of more positive thing than a negative thing, let's say. Um, and so one thing that we sort of underline over and over in this work is that leveling off of inequality needs to be really carefully caveated because what is contributing to that leveling off? Um, and we find that, that the major contributor is in this growth in, in death um, within a particular racial group. And so then you get this um, race to the bottom, essentially. Um, importantly, Prior theories had focused on a lot of these static, important but static factors that could contribute to explaining why we might see variation in these mortality rates across races. And our focus was to bring it back to sort of, you know, if if we if we focus on on only those factors, we cannot possibly explain all of the variation. But if we start thinking about political factors, um, so political polarization in particular, we can actually explain quite a lot of what's actually happening in the closing of this gap through this very unfortunate channel. And that is um, through political polarization at the at the public policy level of COVID policies um, enacted at, across different states and across different time. Uh, different periods, and as well, public opinion differences across parties. Um, and so these, these are sort of factors that were not as highlighted early on in contributing to this type of change. And so we, we sort of wanted to, to both underline, we need to be very careful when we talk about closing of gaps in racial mortality inequality. And then secondly, sort of focus our attentions on this new type of, of channel in which we could see um, politics influence public health. And do you have just any final thoughts as we wrap things up here that you think is important for people to know about this study? I think moving forward, the hardest part that is, is to be sort of, this is not the fun parts generally of describing research, but it's just, just to be really careful in the way we describe um, how inequality uh, has gone down or gone up, right? It's the, the, the reasons with which we see closing of gaps or opening of gaps are, are highly important. Um, and being able to parse that out carefully and, and caveat according to that is, is important. And so that, this is something that I'm hoping um, we, we pay more attention to moving forward. I've been talking with Adeline Lowe, Assistant Professor of Political Science over at UW-Madison and the lead author on a new report showing how the polarization of politics and public opinions on COVID has an effect on the racial inequalities of COVID mortality. Uh, Adeline, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much, Nate. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Rachel Fields, here with my co-host, Sam Swartz. Thanks for joining us.
Tomorrow is the anniversary of the passage of the Mississippi Constitution in 1870. The literacy test, the poll tax, and the grandfather clause were all designed to exclude African-American men from voting. Feature contributor Harry Richardson has the story. For Joe Hill and Cesar Chavez, who fought in their own time. For our brothers and our sisters, up and down that picket line. For the unnamed and unnumbered, who struggle brave and long. For the union men and women, standing up and standing strong. Tomorrow, November 1st, is the anniversary of the passage of the Mississippi 1890 Constitution. The open intent of the new Constitution was to take away the right of black people to vote. Its major provisions called for a literacy test, a poll tax, and a grandfather clause. It also excluded those who had been convicted of bribery, burglary, theft, arson, obtained money or goods under false pretenses, perjury, forgery, embezzlement, or bigamy crimes that were thought to be more commonly committed by black people. The goal was to circumvent the 1870 ratification of the 15th Amendment, which barred states from depriving citizens of the right to vote based on race. Legislators in southern states focused on maintaining white supremacy electorally used loopholes in the 15th Amendment to disenfranchise African Americans without explicitly characterizing them on the basis of race. More than half a million black men, women, were excluded, joined the voting rolls in the 1870s, helping to elect nearly 2,000 black men to public office. Mississippi led the way in using measures to end that participation. Mississippi's Jim Crow laws then set a precedent for other southern states, which quickly followed suit. These laws, along with violent suppression and intimidation by the KKK, kept black voters' participation low until the passage of the 1965 Voting Rights Act. Laws in many southern states made it illegal to teach African Americans to read during slavery. In the 1880 census report, 76% of African Americans were illiterate compared to 21% of whites. In 1900, 50% of voting age black men couldn't read compared to 12% of voting age white men. Those disparities made literacy tests one of the most effective tools of voter suppression. The white voting clerks could also pass or fail a person at their discretion based on race. Illiterate white people were often excluded from those tests through the use of the Grandfather Clause, which tied their voting rights to their grandfathers before the Civil War. Formerly enslaved people could not use this provision. Poll taxes of $2 a year also prevented many blacks from voting. Eleven states required citizens to pay poll taxes before they could vote, disproportionately harming African Americans. In Georgia, which implemented a cumulative poll tax in 1877 that required every citizen to pay back taxes to vote, black voter participation went down 50%. When those methods failed, white legislators in several southern states used all-white primaries to all but eliminate black voter presence in the electoral process. In Texas, for example, the legislature gave the Democratic Party the power to set its own rules, and the party quickly decided it was for whites only, excluding African Americans from its elections, and effectively made local electoral politics dominated by one party that upheld Jim Crow laws. This law stood until 1944, after a white election official excluded a black man, Lonnie Smith, from voting in the 1940 Democratic primary. The NAACP's Thurgood Marshall and William Hastie challenged the case all the way to the Supreme Court. In 1944, the Supreme Court ruled that the Texas white primary was unconstitutional. 1890 law was also a turning point in state history when a class-based social structure rooted in slavery and plantations 
gave way to a new, more volatile structure driven by even more extreme racial concerns. The Constitution was sold as a way to suppress African Americans, but became a power struggle between the landed political elite and the mass of poor whites. Unfortunately, those poorer whites gave in to racist white populism, electing one of the legislature's leaders who pushed through the 1890 Constitution to the 1903 governorship. James Vardaman used class resentment and manipulated racial hatred. He denounced the education of African Americans as a positive unkindness that renders him unfit for the work which the white man has prescribed for him, and which he will be forced to perform. He said the nature of black people was to be lazy, lying, lustful animals. Vardaman once declared, if it is necessary, every Negro in the state will be lynched to maintain white supremacy. Vardaman used this racial hatred to get elected to the Senate in 1916, winning 74 out of 75 counties. It would take until 1965 to restore African-American rights. Tragically, just this year, 33 states have introduced pre-filed or carried over 165 bills to restrict voting access, impose stricter voter ID requirements, slash voter registration opportunities, and enable more aggressive voter roll purges. These proposals are based on the false charges of election fraud by the Trump-led right. If passed, these laws would again disproportionately affect people of color and poor people. Hopefully, get-out-the-vote efforts nationally will be enough to block most of these efforts. For the past is the past. I'm Harry Richardson. Election Day is just over a week away, and there are several statewide races in Wisconsin this fall, including Secretary of State, U.S. Senate, and, of course, the race for governor. Last week, Friday 8 o'clock Buzz host Andy Moore spoke with Scott Grabens, the chair of the Republican Party of Dane County, and Alexia Sabor, the chair of the Democratic Party of Dane County. They spoke about the two parties' strategy and issues going into the upcoming election on November 8th. You know, I did a roll call there at the top of the statewide races, and I want to start with the, the Secretary of State race, something that we've covered here at WRT quite a bit over the summer through the primary and now on into the general election. The reason why, as many of our listeners, and, and as you two well know, the Secretary of State race is not the sleepy uh, little affair that it normally is, even though it's a statewide uh, office, is um, there is par- there are partisan efforts afoot to change the um, authorities for the Secretary of State, depending on the partisan makeup of the legislature and and the governor's office. Uh, Those changes, and thank you for bearing with this long uh, uh, introduction here of the question, but just for the listener's benefit, those changes would, as as I may have mentioned, would give oversight of our elections um, and take them from elections commission, give them to the secretary of state. Uh, Scott Gravens, um, what are are your views um, on behalf of your constituents about those kinds of changes? Well, I think there, there's certainly a, a lot of interest in seeing that uh, we make some changes on, in how we do oversee our elections. Uh, I don't know that necessarily everybody is 100% agree that, it, that that should go straight to the, the Secretary of State or if there's other reforms we might be able to do within the Elections Commission as it is. But uh, definitely a lot of interest uh, in seeing uh, seeing us improve the process there so everybody can have uh, more confidence in, in how the election. Thank you. Do you see room for some of those changes um, and some authorities to be given to the officer who would be the Secretary of the State? Uh, yeah, yeah, I do see room for that. Uh, you know, it is, it is a constitutional office. It's elected 
you know, by the voters of the state. Uh, I think over the years, you know, frankly, that office has shrunk in responsibility. Uh, and I think it certainly would be fair to uh, put some responsibilities back there. Alexis Sabour, uh, what are uh, your constituents in the Democrats' position on um, changing the powers of the Secretary of State? Yeah, I would say that pretty uniformly opposed by folks within the Democratic Party. We see this as, first of all, I, I would be shocked if they are uh, Republicans are inter- interested in transferring those powers if the seat is continued to be held by a Democrat. But, you know, there's really no good reason to concentrate that kind of power in this seat. But now what we have is the Elections Commission, which is a bipartisan board that the Republicans created that provides some checks and balances and doesn't invest all of the power in uh, a single person. But if we were going to go back to something that was, you know, truly a model for the nation, we would restore the Government Accountability Board, which required that participants not be engaged in any kind of partisan electoral um, practices for at least two years before they were appointed to that board. And that was a model for the nation. It was truly bipartisan. That would be the improvement we would like to see. I'm sure that we will see, and and perhaps this is all for the better. Uh, We'll see some robust conversation about making that office a little more meaningful, hopefully to the majority of of, of people in Wisconsin. Let's talk about closing days priorities for your parties. Uh, Scott, what are the Republican priorities and strategies to get out the vote before November 8th? Well, really, it's all about contacting voters. Yeah, so we're going to be doing the, the phone calls and doors. There will be a couple events here and there, rallies of sorts, but uh, largely you know, we, we've got to go out and talk to the voters. So that's uh, where all our attention is. Alexia, priorities and strategies for Democrats? Yeah, well, obviously everybody's priority is talking to the greatest number of voters possible. In our case, you know, we have been working through our neighborhood uh, grassroots activist teams, which are 22 strong throughout <laughs> the county. We've opened seven offices throughout the county, including places like Mount Horeb and Sun Prairie and Stoughton, to make sure that we are getting in contact with as many Democratic voters as possible, not just today, but we've been doing this. We started this process like a year ago to make sure that we were building those relationships all along. It's generally true that Democrats uh, run run the city votes uh, and Republicans more or less sweep rural zip codes. Scott, would you agree with that, or, or are you targeting urban voters in new ways um, this election cycle? No, I, I, you know we're we're competing everywhere. Uh, you know, I, obviously we're very active in Madison. Uh, we're active in he's around Madison, uh, out Mount Horeb, Verona, Fitchburg, Stoughton, uh, and we've got candidates. Uh, you know, we focused a lot on statewide candidates, but we have a lot of candidates here running for assembly. Mm-hmm. We have an excellent candidate for, for county sheriff. So, you know, we're competing mm-hmm. everywhere in this county, urban and rural. Alexi, I mentioned the urban and rural split here That's, um, what, of what we're speaking now. Um, do you more or less concede rural vote or, or, or how are you working the country? Yeah. So one of the things that I have done as chair is to work to strengthen our ties to rural communities, areas outside of Madison. I've been working with the chair of the Rural Caucus of the State Party to do that, to figure out strategies to do that. And you know, the beauty of a statewide vote is that you actually can't be gerrymandered out of it. A statewide, a, a Democratic vote anywhere in the state is a Democratic vote, and it is one of the elections in which your vote anywhere 
counts as much as someone who is from Madison or Milwaukee. Scott Grabens is the chair of the Republican Party of Dane County. Alexia Sabor is the chair of the Democratic Party of Dane County. Scott, the paid political ads on both sides, as well as the campaign trail rhetoric with the candidates. You hear the word radical to describe the opposition. Mandela Barnes, too radical. Ron Johnson, too radical. Tony Uvers, too radical. Tim Michaels, too radical. Scott, what does radical mean to you? Well, radical... You know, here in this, I mean, it's simply obviously being used in a, in a derogatory way. But, uh, you know, what we have to paint a picture. I mean, this this election really is a referendum on the, the Democrat policies that are running our nation right now and running our state. And that's, you know, to me, you know, that's I guess that is what's radical. And that's what voters have to look at right now when they decide what we're going to do this fall. Can you give an example of uh, what uh, you believe uh is uh, specific of a radical agenda? Radical agenda? Uh, the defund the police movement. I mean, that, to me, is a, is a very radical movement. We're seeing uh, the results of that right now. Uh, we just had the, the trial in the, or not Kenosha in uh, Waukesha. Yeah, we're seeing the results of that, and people are feeling that in their neighborhoods. So, you know, defunding the police, to me, that is a radical position. Alexia Sabor, what does the word radical mean to you? Yeah, I mean, I will give you a perfect example of what I would consider to be a radical policy, and that is trying to undermine the peaceful transfer of power in a democratic republic by perpetuating a lie that there was tampering and that Joe Biden didn't fairly win the 2020 election. And Senator Ron Johnson has aided and abetted the big lie. You know, he has downplayed the events of January 6th. I would also point out that Scott Grabens is one of the Wisconsin Republicans who posed as a fake elector to fraudulently deliver the state's electoral college votes to Donald Trump. This, what we have here right now, is a senator who has aided and abetted insurrection. That is radical. I want to get um, to the 2020 election in, in just a minute, um, but um, Alexia, there, there are reasonable voters who are concerned um, and who misunderstand, for example, that Mandela Barnes's position on early release of prisoners may be out of the mainstream. Can you explain that position or, or the Democratic vision of a fair parole release program? Yeah, I mean, that is not my area of expertise, so I don't want to really get too deeply into it. But I mean, it's obvious that our criminal justice system isn't working for a huge number of people in our country. We have the highest incarceration rates of African Americans, disproportionate to their percentage of the population by a huge amount. You know, so I think that is one piece of the criminal justice reform idea that aims to rectify, excuse me, rectify some of the systemic inequities in our criminal justice system. Scott, I want to stay with this radical theme um, just for another question or so. Ron Johnson has taken positions on the very far edges on the treatment and control of COVID. Are you comfortable with his representation for Wisconsin on that issue? Sir, uh, Senator Johnson's been a, a leader and advocate in, in, you know, right to try for, you know, for um, medical treatments and patients. And, you know, I, I absolutely would not characterize his position as fringe. I mean, his position has just been, 
to keep an open mind. Um, there's a number of doctors that have promoted, uh, I guess, alternative treatments, and there nobody is saying that one treatment is right for everyone. Uh, but we needed to keep our options open, and we should be looking at effective alternative treatments. Scott, it's an unavoidable fact that Republican candidates, many Republican candidates, are, are running loudly on Trump's position that the last presidential election was stolen. Michaels and Johnson have spoken to this in ways that leave a great amount of room for doubt about it. Do you believe the 2020 presidential election was invalid this, just sitting here this morning? The, there were problems in how the election uh, was run. And we're seeing court cases that are coming out now, for example, you know, the, the ruling on how ballots should or should not be cured. And we're seeing that the, the laws we had in place that were passed by the legislator, signed by our governor, were not being followed. And so there, there's a number of irregularities in there that I think we need to fix uh, in order so people can have confidence in the election. It, it's interesting because we acknowledge it, the three of us um, at the top of this conversation that there there's um, all kinds of ways to look at making elections more secure or as needed. But I ask you if you if you believe the 2020 presidential election was invalid, do you believe that? No, I, I don't believe that it was invalid, but okay. I believe there's a number of issues that we need to correct there. Okay. Alexis Sabor, the poll momentum at the moment in, was, uh, in Wisconsin and nationally is with the Republicans, especially for House seats. Why do you think that is, and, and what do Dems need to do in the remaining week and a half? Yeah, I mean, we knew that we always, historically, the, the power of the party that has the presidential seat has the most challenges during the midterm elections. And we knew that races like our races here for uh, Senator would be among the most contentious and expensive in the country. And really, no matter what we're seeing on the airwaves or what we might feel about the ads that are coming in, like we know that our work on the ground isn't going to change. We are working hard to energize and mobilize voters. We're reaching them directly with information about how our Democratic candidates are working to help all of Wisconsin, and our ground strategy isn't really going to be a whole lot different here in Wisconsin and Dane County than it's been, which is to say we're knocking doors, we're making calls, we're holding events, we're really ensuring that we get to every Democratic voter in the state. Scott Grabens, in the last 10 or 15 seconds that we have, any last uh, appeal for the Republican vote? Uh, Just again, this uh, election is a referendum on the Democratic's policies. I mean, they're you know, they've been in power, they've run the state of Wisconsin, and they're running the nation, and this is uh, a referendum on how people think uh, they've done that job. Just a week and a half to Election Day, Alexia Sabor and Scott Gravens, thank you for joining us on the 8 o'clock buzz at this very busy time. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate your time. The time right now is 6.52 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news here on WORT. Today, feature contributor Harry Richardson reviews two new serious movies. All Quiet on the Western Front, based on the book of the same name, is an anti-war classic about World War I, now on Netflix. On the big screen, Till is the tragic story of the 1955 murder of Emmett Till, a mother's love, and its impact on the modern civil rights movement. Mister. Paul
That was a clip from the trailer for All Quiet on the Western Front, directed by Edward Berger. The movie is in English. This is a moving film that shows the brutality and pointlessness of war up close and personal. Berger, who learned his craft at a New York University film program and the indie company Good Machine Inc., went on to direct films and TV in Germany. This is reportedly the first time a German has taken up this book. All Quiet on the Western Front is based on the book of the same name by German author Eric Maria Remark. It comes from Remark's own experience in the war. The book was first published in 1928 in German and in 1929 in the U.S. This is likely the first published anti-war novel. Incredibly, this is only the third movie adaptation. The first was a silent film in 1930, directed by Lewis Milestone. It won two Oscars, one for production and the other for direction. The second was a 1979 TV movie. It starred Richard Thomas, then known as John Boy, from TV's The Waltons, and featured supporting actors Ernest Borgnine and Donald Pleasance. This version was bankrolled by Netflix and started streaming last weekend. Reports say it wouldn't have been made except for Los Angeles British writing and producing team Ian Stockel and Leslie Patterson, who bought the novel's rights and have waited 16 years for this moment. They share screenwriting credits. The movie's central protagonist is newcomer Felix Kammerer as Paul Baller. His main comrades in arms are played by Albrecht Schuck and Stanislaus Kaczynski. One change from the book and prior movies is its portrayal of French and German leaders in peace talks. These scenes show a graphic contrast between the privileged elite and their soldiers. The opulent setting of the negotiations, contrasted with the daily indignities and dangers of the soldiers, was striking. The soldiers endure intense fear and boredom in the trenches. Most fearsome of all are the futile, dangerous charges at the enemy lines. The film's cinematography by James Friend, who makes good use of drone shots, is incredible. As today's media shows the horrors of current conflicts, perhaps most graphically the war between Russia and Ukraine, it is perhaps more important than ever to realize the futility and waste of war and the importance of a negotiated settlement. Tragically, World War I resulted in at least 13 million deaths, according to the end credits. Other figures rate the death toll even higher. Notably, not much territory changed hands amidst all the slaughter of the trench warfare. All told, a well-done grim story that deserves to be seen by a wide audience. I highly recommend it. Next, another serious film, this one set in 1959, in a kind of domestic combat zone, Mississippi. We have a really good life in Chicago. But they have a different set of rules down in Mississippi. You have to be extra careful. I know. Bo, be small. Like this? He's just going to see his cousins. Not a bad thing for him to know where he come from. That was clip from the trailer for an amazing movie, Till, directed by Chinoya Chuku. She wrote the script with Michael Riley and Keith Bochamp. This is an incredible story of courage amidst an almost unbearable loss and injustice against a mother, Mamie Till Mobley. Emma Till is an innocent 14-year-old African-American from Chicago who makes a fateful visit to family in Mississippi. Danielle Deadweiler is extraordinary as Till Mobley. She carries most of the emotional weight of the film. Jalen Hall is convincing as Emma Till, a young teen on his first adventure away from home. Mamie 
like all black parents, has given him the talk, how to behave around white people, to be quiet, always say yes sir, no sir, to be careful, be small, and stay close to your cousins. Tragically, this just doesn't sink in. He walks alone into a white-owned grocery store catered to by African Americans. He innocently compliments the woman behind the counter, Carolyn Bryant, Haley Bennett, the spouse of the store's owner. Her distaste is evident, but Emmett doesn't notice. Her husband finds out and several white men kidnap, torture, and murder Emmett, throwing his body into the river. Till Mobley is horrified by the news, but makes a momentous series of decisions to fight against her son's murder. The first was to have an open casket funeral and to encourage the media to take pictures. Soon Jet and other African-American publications have plastered his pictures on their covers, showing the nation what they did to him. Till Mobley testifies at the trial of two whites accused of killing her son. An all-white male jury declares them not guilty. Amazingly, Till Mobley finds the strength to carry on and becomes a civil rights activist fighting for anti-lynching laws. President Biden signed the Emmett Till anti-lynching law March 29th of this year. But as the Black Lives Matter movement has shown, not that much has changed since 1955. For WRT's Monday Movie Review, I'm Harry Richardson. And that does it for our show. Thanks so much for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Harry Richardson, Andy Moore with the 8 o'clock buzz, and to Nicholas Leet for technical production. Victor Calzoni engineered the show tonight. Nate Weggehout produced this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director here at WORT. I'm your host, Sam Swartz. And I'm your host, Rachel Fields. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is the most free-form show on your radio dial, The Access Hour. Have a great night.